Welcome to episode 255 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Vanessa Leach. Vanessa initially joined the Air Force, but when it didn't work out, she decided to join the Army a few years later. She wanted to work in the field of nursing, but it wasn't open, so her recruiter recommended that she worked in preventative medicine. It wasn't anything like what she expected and didn't set up her future career like she had hoped. Today, she is a social worker and just released her newest book, Veteran Affairs Whistleblower Retaliation. She is dedicated to supporting and assisting individuals from all backgrounds, ensuring their voices are heard and their needs are met. I really hope you enjoy this interview, but before we get started, I want to let you know that Women of the Military podcast is available on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And if you are considering supporting Wreaths Across America's national event on December 16th, wreaths are available for purchase through November 28th. So if you haven't gotten your wreath order in yet, we're running out of time. So get your wreath order in today for your local cemetery. I'll also have a link in the show notes for a cemetery that I am supporting. So that is something you can do as well. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. So let's get started. Welcome everyone to Women of the Military podcast. I'm really excited to interview Vanessa. We connected on LinkedIn and she's supporting me on Patreon. So if you want to support me on Patreon, you can as well. Um, I really appreciate all the support from the people on Patreon. It really helps me keep going. So thank you so much for being a guest and for being a supporter of the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And I'm also happy to see, um, because it's so rare, of like a platform dedicated about women being in the military because there's so much just sexism and discrimination about that. And especially where I live, I live in North Carolina and it's so bad out here with just comments being made and stuff and just oblivious, like women thinking women are secretaries and being protected by these big, strong men and that it's all men. So it's just a lot of like backwards thinking. So it's nice because you put a lot of work into this. I mean, you're like interviewing so many people. I don't know how you do. I would have collapsed by now. I mean, it really helps to bring awareness that, like, it's a real thing. Women really have been, are in on the military. So I'm glad for that. I think it's learning about the history of women that just keeps me motivated and excited. And then the next generation of women who are looking to join the military and how they use our stories to help them as they make decisions. So then that keeps, so I get the motivation on, like, both the learning aspect and then inspiring the next generation. And I just love getting to meet women veterans. They, they're amazing. And so it's been really fun. So enough about me. Let's talk about your story and start with why did you decide to join the military? You know, I didn't really think I even knew the answer to that. And looking back, I don't feel like I really knew the true answer that I thought I did at the time because I was 19 years old when I was first successfully recruited into militaries in a couple of different branches. And basically the department of defense is what I'll call it. Basically ate up. I'm just going to I'm just going to be brutally honest about how I really feel most of my young adult years. I'm grateful I didn't join sooner because I could have joined at like 17. And I think that very likely could have happened. I know a lot of people that go in that are that young, 17, 18, are fearful of leaving because they don't know anything else in their adult life. So I did not have that experience because I was living independently. I was doing very well for myself as a young adult. I was very successful had a lot of options, a lot of things going for me. And so I was never afraid to get out because of that. 
not being exposed, but to get to your question about why did I join at the time I joined when I was 19 and my 19 year old mind was thinking that this would be a great career opportunity and that this was a great way to kind of get like career advancement. So my whole life, even now I'm very career oriented, very career focused my whole life, even as a teenager before I became an adult. So that's kind of what I was thinking. However, when I, now I'm 38 years old and when I look back, I, you know, in the last few years, I realized the real reason, especially the data that's come out and us being very connected on the internet is because I came from a military family and about 80% historically of people in the military are going to be coming from these military families. Another huge likelihood of people being in the military is if they have a military base close to them where they're living. I did. Wasn't like a huge one like uh, Fort Liberty, formerly Fort Bragg, North Carolina, but it was a military base. I was brought on it multiple times as a child to those little fun little festive like air events that they have, family friendly. So all of that is so kind of a sort of social conditioning when you think about it, right? You know, for this to be normalized and to get this into your head early on, just like if you hung out at your dad's law firm and you become a lawyer later on, you may not recognize that that was a stepping stone, but it was. And so um, that's just what I was exposed to. My mother was in the military for about 15 years between, I think, three branches. Yeah, she made her way around. And I had multiple members in my family that had been in different branches of the military and different components. And I mean, all over the place. And the thing is, they didn't talk about it, though. So my decision was far from informed because I was there was this awareness, but there wasn't like a communication about their time in and pros and cons or anything like that. But I think the real reason was because, yeah, I came from a military family and it was a huge influence in my decision making, even though it was unconscious at the time. Yeah, I like how you reflected back because I've done that a lot with my experience of joining because I would say, oh, September 11th, that happened right before I joined. That's like the big thing. But then I think about like, what was I running away from? What was I experiencing in my life? And there were a lot of other reasons that I joined the military. And I've talked to so many military kids or military brats who are like, I join the military but I know anything about it and I'm like how how do you not know but it makes sense like there's so many things that are things that adults know that they think that their kids know and they never actually tell them and then they have you know no idea why they're doing certain things or what they're experiencing so that makes a lot of sense so you decided to join at 19 what branch and career field did you pick so initially, um, I'm just going to kind of hop around. So basically, I was in the Air Force briefly. The recruiter at the Air Force was completely disgusting. He uh, should not be in the, should not have been allowed to stay in the military. There was a lot of just dishonesty and crap that got me pulled into it. And we, we weren't allowed to pick our career field. That's not what was happening at that time, 2005. I was told when I got there, I'd be able to pick it. That did not happen. Okay. And so I ended up not even completing i'm brutally honest i didn't even complete basic training and stuff i was not having it when i got there and there was some a lot of the training camps as you may know i know you've interviewed a lot when i looked at your history backlog of course can't look at all of them of all these interviews i was looking at the transcripts and stuff but the training camps in my experience in 2005 forward uh were just like like breeding grounds for abusive behavior because, and I look back and uh, Army and Air Force, and then that's just what I saw. And even after basic training in those camps. And so there were some really 
not good things happening in that camp. And that would be kind of like the pattern that would move forward in all these training camps that'd be involved in. The worst ones seem to be basic training though, and then AIT, but basic training was the worst. I look back, I think it was because of the fact that, I mean, now, okay, so I'm hearing different things. I don't know what's true, what's not. But now I hear they can have like cell phones and stuff. Like I wouldn't even want to call like 911 or like SOS, like call a friend, phone a friend. So it sounds like you're not, but back then there were no cell phones. You had calling cards, these horrendous calling cards. I, it was just horrible. And there, if something was going sideways, which of course was regularly, you know, uh, you couldn't reach out for help. I remember in the army being prevented, people were prevented from going to medical even after certain bad things would happen. So, you know, there was no, no oversight and there was this power and control dynamic where you have these people in charge, you know, they're called different things, different branches, armies, like drill sergeants, um, back then. And, you know, you have these super young people, most of them, and it's just isolation and just like this perfect environment. Evidently, this is a common thing across all the branches. Historically, the Marines, I, you know, that would later come out that they too were having very similar things happening when somebody getting killed out there, a couple people, and then, you know, came out. So yeah, so it wasn't a great experience. Um, anyways, then later when I was 22, I was recruited. I ended up going and this guy was honest. He was honest. I ended up in the army and I ended up on active duty. And then I was, did the full contract for that one. And it kind of like, I felt pressure basically to being honest with you because the Florida is where I grew up and they still are big military people out there in Florida, which is good for veterans. But I, I, there was just so much pressure to join and there was the wars going on. It was just pressure, pressure, pressure coming from military family. It was like unspoken pressure. And then, so rejoin, it kind of felt like a clear the slate or whatever. And then at that point, you know, I, that I did my time and I got, got out as soon as that contract ended on paper, everything looked really perfect. Got all these awards, very glowing, very you know, amazing, but, uh, the reality was anything but. So you initially went in the air force. That wasn't a good experience. And I was just thinking about what you were talking about. Like we had to give our cell phones in and I went in 2004, I think 2005, somewhere around that time frame, And they were starting to make changes. What year was that when they were making changes? Well, I, I think it was like 2005 when I went, I can't remember exactly, but that sounds about right. But they, like, limited how much the physical discipline could be. And I went to uh, the officer training, so it was a little different than the basic. But we turned our phones in the first day, and we didn't get calling cards. We only could do letters. And we didn't – and it was only 28 days, so it wasn't like it was forever long. But there was no outside anyone you could talk to while you were there. And Yeah, so I was enlisted. That's an important differentiation. I was junior enlisted the whole time for both branches. At 19, I mean, obviously I probably would be because wouldn't I would have finished a degree to qualify. You know, it's not likely. So yeah, that's a huge difference. And I know the bad things do happen to officers, not disputing that. But my observations, experiences, and even the research I've done since I got out, just information's come out. Junior enlisted women are just the hugest of targets for abuse in all these branches from what I can tell. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. That's very true. Yeah, but you highlight, like, you you have no outside contact. And, yes, now they do. They get their cell phones every weekend. Heard. And I'm like, 
you got yourself up for like four, like whenever we had free time, there was always someone who got in trouble and then we didn't actually get free time. And so they were like, no, we got four hours of free time. We have our phone, we can go on the internet, we can do this, that. And I was just like, that is just so crazy compared to, you were like cut off from the outside world. And the only thing you knew is what the people in charge told you. So it's changed dramatically. Yeah, I've heard it has. And like I said, it's, you know, I got out in 2012 off of active duty. And so I I hear things, but I mean, I don't really know exactly what the deal was because, you know, I'm not there and I don't see like a bunch of like videos coming out saying, you know, here's my vlog, you know, from (laughs) basic training a day in the life with the phones. But I think it's really good if that's all true that they have their phones now, um, you know, in their spare, spare time, free time, whatever. Acon cards were such a ripoff, number one. Number two, I think it's just really important that if something is going sideways that they can notify someone that can take action. Yeah, because not only is it a calling card, but you have a phone where you can talk for a few minutes in an open area, and it's not like you have like your cell phone one-on-one where you can, I'm in trouble, I need help. Send a text message. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's lots of other options. So, yeah, so I think that is there are positive changes but there are there were a lot of things that were wrong so you had a better experience in the army i wouldn't say it was a better experience i just tolerated it i just endured is what i did i just i didn't uh refuse to participate i just endured so it really wasn't a better experience it was just i endured is what i did and so you what career field did did you go into when you were in the army so in the Army, they did let you pick around that time. So the second time was in 2008. That recruiter for the Army, he was a really great guy, really stand-up person, and a very high opinion of him to this day. Uh, unfortunately, the way the recruiting system worked then and even now, from what I can tell, they really are, and especially back then with, I feel so old, but before the internet was what it is today and before AI and stuff, there was just such a limited access to information. And so it was a lot easier to do information control and abuse basically type stuff. And so my recruiter, I'm convinced, did not know all the information he needed to know. He knew what he was told, which is very limited um, to get people to join essentially. And so, you know, I actually wanted back then to do like because my grandma was a nurse for over 30 years, like an LPN. So that, of course, influenced me. So I went into the LPN thing and it wasn't available. And I just, again, wasn't a very good advocate for myself and wasn't, and he wasn't very informed about different things as well. So I ended up in this thing called uh, preventive medicine specialist, which I think you interviewed somebody who did that as well. I didn't know what it was. He did not know what it was. You know, it was like the closest thing that to the LPN thing that was like available. It was it was absurd, honestly. I let's be honest, I wouldn't have joined the military at all if I'm being brutally honest. I do it all over again, but let's just say if I'd redo that decision, I think I would have picked like linguist or something, just something <laughs> more useful, maybe long term, than this preventive medicine specialist because it's like you don't like. There's nothing you can take away from that. There's no like license, like LPN or language, like linguist. You know, you're just it just is what it is. So the military occupation and not much more. I'm the same age as you. So I'm like, I know how you feel because I just went to the Taylor Swift theater concert and I was like, I am so old. <laughs> I went with a bunch of my mom friends and I was just, and there were like little 13 year olds and I was like, I'm so old. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know why I'm here, but 
I the internet has changed so much, but even still, like even though there's all this information, there's still like a disconnect between like you know getting that information and asking the right questions. But obviously, it was a lot harder back then because you were like, "Oh, medicine! This this is right there," and you're like, oh, "Wait, this is nothing, nothing like what I'm I'm thinking of when I'm thinking medicine and nursing, and it's you know like." charts and keeping track of things and trying to prevent things and not really yeah nothing it's totally different that makes a lot of sense and I've even noticed that like there's like dual military because my husband and I were both active duty and I was talking to a recruiter and I was like he didn't tell this girl that she needed to do this paper and she's like I would have known that because I wasn't dual military and I was like but you should have like done the wherewithal of looking back and figuring out what paperwork needed to be done to make sure that she could be stationed with her spouse who was in the military as well but they didn't they didn't do that and so then they got stationed in two different locations and that's outrageous yeah that shouldn't be allowed to happen at all yeah but i i i'm familiar with the dual military because i met my husband and got married on active duty very quickly after i became permanent party was not planned or expected just happens we're still together and one of the reasons, one of the countless reasons I got out of the military at the end of my contract and refused to renew was because they're not military friendly, despite the historical propaganda. I mean, there's some signs that that may be changing, but as you know, my experiences are that it really hasn't overall, you know, it's been my experiences since I got out and there was no concern, honestly, at all of just well-being of service members when I was in from what I could tell. Like, of course you, like I got along well with all my commanders and so those individuals care. You know, there's individuals that care, but the system, which dictates everything, Department of Defense, did not care. I still don't think that they care. And uh, that was very in- obvious in like decisions like what you're talking about. Like that should have been corrected immediately. The system could correct it. They chose not to. That's a willful choice. And in my instance, if we were trying to look at career options where we could stay together, and that was never an option ever and so i was like yeah i'm done i'm out yeah i agree i think that is there's so many people who aren't joining the military because they understand that the military is not you know willing to work with them the military needs people and they're from my opinion not willing to change in how that they're going to like not have people move as much, keep families together. You know, they're like, but we have this mission. And it's like, yes, there is a mission and people are willing to work hard, but you need to take care of their family. You need to take care of who they are as a person and just make it a better experience because people have the internet now and they can hear information. And so game changer. It totally is. And also another thing I like to point out is that word mission is a total cop out that I've heard through. I heard that countless, I feel like a million times, 50 million times that I felt like I heard it when I was in. And that is just another, it's about how, again, I always talk about power control and abuse all day, every day. It's about power control and abuse when you're able to just use one word to shut a conversation down. And that's exactly what that does. That's a power move right there. And people that say it, you know, because there's a lot of, I've heard a lot of men in particular say that, you know, oh, the mission, you know, like, for example, recently, um, it made it into one of the probably military times or some news place like that, that the Fort Jackson, South Carolina, I think it was, were doing like a family night to kind of give the drill sergeants a break from their duties and have the children come in and they had like a family thing set up. And 
you know, I think like food and, you know, toys and, and different things like that uh, to give a few hours off a break for the drill sergeants, which makes sense. Also, I'd like to point out, I think their hours are too long and they could mix up with more people, more shifts. Like it's just, it doesn't need to be that long. Anyways, to give these humans a break that are in charge and stuff. And it, there were comments online being made like, oh, well, and, and also, um, I, I don't know if an article mentioned it, but it was basically there were comments being made saying, oh, that shouldn't be allowed because that's interference with the mission and like that shouldn't be a priority. And it's just like you're dealing with human beings and I see this a lot, you know, whether you're dealing with corporations in some cases or a federal agency where they don't want to acknowledge that like you're, they're humans, they're not robots and they need to be treated as such. And, you know, that, that's a big problem. Or the, like, saying of you're not issued a family, so you don't need one. And it's like, but you're a person, you know? Right. And as you get older, you're going to fall in love, get married, have kids, have a family. Like, if the military is not accounting for that, then you're going to have a problem because people aren't going to want to stay because they're going to choose their family over their... I mean, a few people won't. They'll choose their career over their family. But a lot of people want that work-life balance in their family and... And they'll probably die prematurely because a lot of, I just listened to something last night about people die um, a number of years earlier on average that are, have so, like poor social networks, it's like whether it be the isolation essentially, you know what I mean? And it's already shown that people that make careers out of the military, full careers, die much earlier than the civilian population and veteran population as a whole. It kind of shows that, but specifically pronounced if they make a whole 20, 30 year career. And I think it's because of those kinds of issues where it's like their whole life was this one thing and then they take that away and then it's like, what now? You know, I think it just like literally kills them, you know. But I fortunately, when I was in, I didn't hear the military didn't issue a family thing. I heard that was a thing that was said in the past, but the rhetoric had since shifted. I guess they should have shifted the mission. So you stayed in, you did a job that you, that wasn't really what you wanted to do. You got married, your life changed a lot. And then it was time to renew and you were like, no way, I would like to stay with my spouse. And they're like, that's not an option. So when you left the military, were you ready to get out and start your next adventure? I absolutely was. I mean, I hit the ground running. I really was wasting no time at all. Um, and I did look at like career options when I was in the military, becoming an officer, doing social work as a military officer, essentially. And of course, the, the thing that one is keep us together. And then just other things I was seeing that I just wasn't impressed with. So anyways, I did get out. I had already lined up my school and everything. So I went pretty quickly into social work school, not like instantaneously, but pretty quickly. And I did finish up my social work degree, um, which I t- used to some extent here or there to this day. So, you know, late, most recently I've been doing family mediation, small claims court mediation. I'm kind of um, in the state that I used to live in and be resident of, grew up in Florida online. And I've transitioned out of that. I'm actually about to transition back into private practice again, my own again. And then I, in the future, I plan in private practice, mental health specifically, counseling services for adults. And then I plan to transition again back into mediation, but like combined two, because that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to do that. It's not worked out. It's just been like very stressful many years, honestly, because when I got out, you know, I did go to social work school. I checked all the boxes very quickly. I passed my national exam rapidly. A lot of people struggle with that, may not be able to pass it. 
did that very quickly right after graduation. And then the bump, then, then the roadblocks really started hitting at that point because the getting licensed in my occupation, licensed as a clinical social worker or a lot of occupations, you know, and there's a lot of industries. There's a lot of talk about that. You may be aware of that. There's federal law just passed for military spouses to recognize their licenses on some level. I don't think it's broad enough, quite frankly, which is amazing. A little late for me. Would have been helpful like, I don't know, 10 years ago that they could have done that. But they've done it. And it was very challenging. The licensing is very challenging for most people licensing. Um, specifically, I feel like in the mental health occupations, it, you know, in social work, I don't know. It was very challenging. They, there's a lot of legal requirements these boards have. They vary across the states. Nobody wants to, you're really limited on the, what you can and can't do is the simplest way to explain it. Every state's different. And you, there's just, a lot of people don't want to hire you or you can't do certain things because you're not independently licensed yet. And you need to be able to do so certain things so you can go ahead, you know, a lot of these things. So you can get the license to do the other things. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just like this circular loop and it's very expensive and very time consuming. Years and thousands of dollars go into this. Somebody's paying for it some way, shape or form, whether it be your employer, yourself, but whatever the case, it's a lot. So that's what I had the hardest time with. And um, I uh, made the very ill-informed choice to start working at the VA and that started before I graduated. It wasn't the most horrendous experience, but I started seeing a lot of real big red flags before. Just a, kind of, I wasn't involved in anything, but I was kind of observing things from a distance and kind of seeing like glimmers of stuff that wasn't looking good. And then um, I took my first job out of social work school, which was an epic mistake at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's all public. And all hell would break loose from there on out. So that was a huge setback, and that set me back two and a half years of my licensing, more than two and a half years, actually about, I think about three years, because um, I had to start my hours and everything all over and line up employment, and all the work I'd done didn't count towards the license. So, you know, a lot of people think when you first get licensed, because I got licensed in 2019, that you're like a newbie with like not a lot of work experience. You knew, oh no, I had like five years at that point, roughly, of social work experience. So I've been at it. Like now it's going on, let's see, almost a decade of work experience, but I've been licensed less than five years. Yeah. I mean, you talked about a lot of different challenges, especially like as a military spouse, like moving around and like having to worry about getting licensed is, it's really hard and it's really challenging. And the rules for like social work and that I was going through therapy with the therapist and I was like, well, I'm going on vacation. And she's like, if you leave the state you're in, I can't help you. Like even because I was like, well, I'm on a vacation so I could just set up a time. And she's like, no, if you're not in the state that we that we're doing the care in, then we can't do it. And I was like, that's like the dumbest rule ever because I'm still like the same person. But they have like all these restrictions and, you know, and the Internet has changed so much in other industries but there's all these like loopholes and yeah i i totally agree with you a thousand and million percent i agree with you and to be clear i didn't take the job in albuquerque because my husband was there i just took because i wanted to go there and it's the most beautiful state that i have ever lived in they have the most i'm an avid cyclist they have those gorgeous cycling trails just it's a wonderful place it's really wonderful so that part of it was amazing 
Um, so I just went there to advance my career and to work with the military community because I thought it would be like a great like track to be on and it seemed like a great opportunity. He was not there. But yeah, with the moving around, like I actually have intentionally stayed separate from my spouse at times in order to have a career at all. Like for example, he was with pretty much no notice, moved to a completely different state in a very undesirable location and base. And had I gone with him, I never would have gotten a license had I gone with him right away. And so I stayed for a little bit to finish up my requirements. And it wasn't too terribly long. And then I I went thereafter. But yeah, I mean, it's just the lifestyle is not conducive to a career. I'm like amazed I actually ever had a career. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really hard. It's really challenging. And the spouse is not included in the like discussion of where the person's going to be stationed it's like oh we need you to move and it's like but i have like a life and family and my wife has a job or my husband has a job it's like that that doesn't matter and so no no and my husband explicitly from i think his hrc was told by somebody um a few years ago that they don't care about his wife or his family at all or him they're gonna do whatever they want and extended his stay at this undesirable location and that was into that and so yeah I mean, there you go, military-friendly, I mean, or family-friendly, right? To the, and that's why I say, like, I understand that they have, like, paternity leave now or something, and they've extended some different things, offered some things. That's great for new parents. That's great. Um, however, you know, my experiences, observations, just there are great people in the military. There always have been. I've seen them. I've met them. I know they exist. But that system? Yeah, they are making changes, and but you're right. It's, it's more in that uh, that post you know like post the baby being home is like the main change that they've done to extend that's great that's really great then after that it's like you're on your own and yeah yeah my husband's been in almost oh i guess over 17 years and we're like counting down (laughs) to the end of oh my gosh so we're really similarly positioned then i did not know your husband was still i I knew that you got married like i did on active duty i did not know though that because a lot of people get out you know what i mean like at 10 years or something so I didn't know. Yeah, he's been in just over 17 years. So, Do you have any idea what state you may settle in? Well, we, we moved to where we are and we're not leaving. We're in California. Oh, okay, you're in California. Okay, we're clear across the country from each other. So I'm in North Carolina. And so I, I, I just became a resident here like, and I'm planning on staying. And it's not that I wanted to, honestly, North Carolina. No offense to everyone who listens to this. It's my least favorite state I've ever lived in, honestly. Um, but I've got roots here now because of just being here off and on through the years and it would just not be really great for my well-being to like try to do a total do-over to different stakes we've kind of already worked through those things and it'd just be a nightmare yeah we moved last year and when we were looking we knew it would be our last assignment and so we were like where are we going to go and where are we staying where do we want to go and even though people are like, you want to live in LA? Yes, I want to live in LA. And so we do. We live in, yeah. We're very happy here. It's the place for us, even though everything's expensive. But we're very happy. So, um, and there's lots of job opportunities when he gets out. So it's a really good spot. What's well, good? At least you found a place that you're happy with. That's awesome. We're going to be relocating inside of North Carolina to a different location. That's been in the works for a while now. Because I do think I'd be much happier in a couple of different locations. So we're looking at right now Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and uh, 
uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina, right by Camp Lejeune. I actually favor the Camp Lejeune one because I'm just so used to the military. It would be kind of just this natural kind of transition. I visit out there a lot, and it's just it's nice. Well, I, I think it's good to be planning for the future. I just read an article about how you need to start planning for leaving the military two to four years out, and even then you'll still have things that you don't expect. And I was like, I don't like that part, but I'm sure it's true. You also wrote a book, right? Right back there. There it is. It's like not, so that's like my own copy where I was like, it's a sample. I've actually brightened the color so it'll pop more. So that red is going to be like blood red, like vampire red. So right now it's like a little dark for the print. Works good in the ebook though. So what, what inspired you to write your book? So uh, basically, Veterans Affairs was a war retaliation is what inspired it, uh, because I thought this story is so <laughs> crazy. This needs to be documented. <laughs> That's what I thought. And it is a wild story. I mean, it's so wild uh, that I actually made sure to include documentation, legal documents, which are I consulted with an attorney available to the public underneath the FOIA request. But I included some of the main ones because I'm like, some people may not believe this. So I'm going to include my receipts. Receipts don't lie to make sure that, you know, people know this is actually real. This this actually happened. So that's what inspired it. And I started actually writing it before I even officially left the VA 100%. Um, and I really look back, even though I intended it for it to become a book one day, I it was really just a journal for years and years and years. It was literally a massive journal of just mental vomit. A forty fifty thousand dollar forty fifty thousand word journal, and then I didn't think it would ever because it was it was just so like horrible horrible like horribly written horrible everything. I didn't think it ever turned into a book. You know, I kind of I just kind of gave up on it. But then this year, I got motivated. A few different things kind of caught my eye, caught my attention, got me on my radar. And I went through editing for five or six months. It was really easy until, well, it was hard. It was easy, then it was hard again. And um, I condensed it down to 26,000 words, roughly, give or take. And it's actually coherent now. And someone who knows nothing about the topic could easily understand it, which was my goal. I want someone who knew not, who'd never worked in the federal government, who knows nothing about this, who may not even care, to be able to read it and easily understand the deal. And... Um, I didn't want it to be where you have to be a federal civil service executive to like comprehend it, you know, because there's just a lot of like lingo and acronyms and oh my God, you know, it's just so foreign. It is. There's so much that makes it hard to understand. And, and it's really hard to, if you understand the lingo, to take it out so that's someone who can't. So that's really commendable that you were able to do that to change it. And so if people are listening, where can they get your book? So my hub, the number one place to go is womanmilitaryveteran.com. That would be my website, and that's my hub. Now, it is being distributed, not just there. I'm slowly distributing it. Um, by the time this is released, it'll be distributed probably all over just about widely. It's not going to be available. Um, I'm not planning on releasing Amazon, so don't even look, or Audible. So don't even go there. But everywhere else, <laughs> so even libraries. So even if you like want to check something out, audiobook, ebook, hardcover, paperback, but the ebook, audiobook specifically are going to be available in libraries and everywhere books and audiobooks are sold. That's good to know. Yeah, I've had, so I've been through, I've written, this is not my first book I've written. Typically I write happier topics like about health and wellness. You know, it's kind of more my genre in the past. I'm sure I'll probably go back to that in the future at some point. But um, 
Yeah, so this one, uh, the last one I had narrated was about health and wellness topic for clinicians, actually about burnout. I had narrated or narrated it, and then I also did another edition narrated it myself. But this one in particular, you know, it's the most important book I've ever written. I really feel it's the most important work that I've ever done to date, just in general, my whole life. I'm thinking, I'm a huge audiobook fan. I go on Sherp. It's a you don't have to have a subscription, which I love. My book is going to be on Sherp as well. And I'm listening to a bunch of, I'm just a library of books. I'm listening to a new one right now. The link to your blog will be in the show notes in case someone didn't catch it and they want to go find it because that's the easiest way to get information out. I always like to end the interview with advice. And so do you have any advice for someone who's considering joining the military? Yeah, I mean, the best advice I could give, because I avoid recommendations or telling anyone what to do or what not to do, is just to make sure that you're making a fully informed decision, that you're actually doing your own research, getting your own facts from independent, verifiable sources, not propaganda from the government, because that's what you're going to get, and that you're really at peace with that decision so that you're coming with your eyes wide open about it, whatever your decision may be. That is the first thing I would say, you know, the internet is the best it's ever been. It's only going to get better probably. Love the good things about the internet. And to just utilize technology to make sure that you're able to, you know, be fully informed. I think being informed is so important. Asking the right questions, knowing what questions to ask and thinking about your future and why you want to do it and then what you want to get out of the military because the military sure wants to get something out of you. So you need to know what you're going to get out of it on the other side. So thank you so much for being a guest, for sharing your story, for the work you're doing and telling your story as an author. I really am glad that we got connected and got to do this interview. Thank you. Appreciate your time.